You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Uh, back in 2000, a woman, a 35-year-old woman named Kim Tut, went for a regular, um, a regular doctor's appointment and got some terrible news that she had been diagnosed with a very rare and aggressive form of cancer in her jaw, that she had three to six months to live unless they removed part of her jaw from just below the left chin to behind her right ear, and they would reconstruct it with some bones from other places, which I don't fully understand. And so she consented to the surgery in the hopes of being able to extend her life, and, uh, and the surgery went through. She um, dealing with a lot of infirmities from that, and just a few months later, the doctor called and said, uh, we need to tell you that uh, actually you never had cancer at all. Our, uh, our tests got mixed up, and, uh, and the original biopsy was contaminated in the lab, and so we're very sorry. We put you through a surgery you did not need. Uh, she filed a medical malpractice lawsuit and, uh, and eventually settled for a confidential amount. But we can just see in here, and maybe some of us know of stories, where malpractice leads to something very, very bad. Even good remedies, good surgeries, good treatments are wrong if the diagnosis is wrong. And so while what was intended for her good because of a misdiagnosis ended up being a very tragic and terrible thing that she'll have to deal with the rest of her life. In Job chapter 13, verses 4 and 5, we hear this said by Job to his friends who have been sitting with him for, for some time. They begin a conversation, and partway through this conversation, Job has this to say about his friends who traveled all this way to spend all this money, all this time to comfort their friend. And here is what he has to say about their comfort in Job 13, 4 through 5. As for you, you whitewash with lies, worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. Okay, so that's a big change. When we left Job, he was lamenting the day of his birth. He had three of his dear, precious friends who had come to spend a week with him. They didn't say anything. They mourned with him. They weeped with him. They sat with him in the, in the garbage heap and were great, wonderful companions to him in that moment. In Job chapter 4, he laments the day of his birth, and that seems to trigger something that his friends then begin to give him counsel and they misdiagnose his problem horribly, and he calls them worthless physicians. They are trying to apply remedies to the wrong problem, and they hurt Job. They become worthless physicians. So what happened? And that's the task that we have today is to hear part of, part one of this conversation between Job and his friends as they try to process why is Job suffering? Why is this sovereign and just God allowing, even causing, this kind of terrible affliction on Job? Let's recap the story a little bit. In chapter 1, we get introduced to this man named Job from the land of Uz, and he is awesome. He is awesome in every way. He is rich in possessions, cattle, sheep, goats, servants. He is rich in relationships. He has 10 children, seems to have a vibrant relationship with his wife. He's known in the city gates. He's revered by everyone in the land. He's also rich in godliness. He worships every day. He confesses his sin. He leads his children to confess their sin. He worships God, and even God Himself commends Job. He's called blameless and upright, uh, fearing God and forsaking evil, this fourfold description of Job, just to let us know that Job is innocent, he's righteous, he's not perfect, but he is a genuine, he is 
the best of the best when it comes to godliness and wisdom and relationships and just the way to handle life according to wisdom. Job is a model. And God himself even affirms that later on in chapter 1. There's this heavenly scene where all of the angels come and they report to God and Satan comes along as well. And God brings up Job to Satan and says, hey, Satan, notice my servant Job that he is blameless and upright, fears the Lord and turns away from evil. There's none like him in all of the world. There is no one who is more loyal and faithful to me than Job. And Satan then, Satan, the Satan, often called, that, that literally means the accuser. He does what he does, and he accuses Job. He accuses Job of only loving God because God has blessed him. God, you've made his life so good. You've hedged him in, so to speak, and you've protected him from all these things. So, of course, he's going to like you. You give him everything he wants. You've made his life great. And there's this accusation that if you were to take away the benefits of knowing you, he would forsake you to your face. He would curse you. He would hate you. He's only in this for your stuff, God. He doesn't love you for you because you're not worthy of being loved and worshipped for you. So God makes this terrible accusation both against God's worthiness to be worshipped in this way and Job's motivations. And so uh, God allows Satan to go ahead and test Job. Take away all his possessions. You can do anything, but you cannot touch the man himself. So on one very, very terrible day, Job loses all of his possessions, all of his servants, and all of his children. All ten of them are dead. And then we get the test. Does Job Job follow God even when it seems like God is against him? Does Job love God for God or does Job only love God for the benefits he gets from God? And we get this in Job 1, 21 and 22. This is Job's response. He said, naked I came from my womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job passed the test. Job loves God for God. Even if God takes away everything from Job, Job says, I still will worship and love and know God. So this brings us to chapter 2. We get a replay of this same heavenly scene, and God seems very proud of Job. Job is still in his misery. Job doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know about this conversation in heaven. He's just hurting. So God again repeats his affirmation of Job. You weren't able to get him to turn on me, Satan. Satan says, well, actually, Job is worse than I thought. He actually only cares about himself. If you afflict him physically, if he feels pain himself, then he will hate you. He actually didn't care about his possessions all that much. He actually only cares about his own comfort, his own health. What do you have if you don't have your health? So God allows Satan to take his health, to afflict him with terrible sores and diseases. And this happens. Job's in misery, wormy, pussy sores from his head, from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. Can't sleep, can't eat. He's miserable in every way. And here's what happens at the end of chapter middle of chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Just just pull the trigger, Job. Just, Just be done with this. Curse God. He'll certainly be angry with you and he will put you out of your misery. And here's what he said to her. He says it really pretty gently as he confronts her, but does so gently, I think. He said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not also receive evil? In this, Job did not sin with his lips. So he passes the test. 
In sort of this burst of adrenaline, he responds with godliness, but then the pain and the loss sets in. He continues to be miserable. Some of you know that, that sometimes you can kind of gut your way through immediately, through the immediate tragedy, but then all of a sudden everything gets really quiet. People go back to their lives and things get really, really dark and difficult. And so Job, in a sense, enters a season of long testing, of living with what he has lost now. We get this sweet gesture of friendship at the end of chapter 2 where these three friends who are rich and wise, they drop everything. They represent the wisdom and, uh, of, the, of the surrounding area. These are, these are the best of the best, and these guys all drop what they're doing to go spend time with their friend. It says this in Job 2, 11 through 13. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all of this evil that had come upon Job, they came, each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanites, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. That was very sweet. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great." So in the midst of this, he's not alone. He's got these dear friends, and they respond so well. They just sit with him. Then in chapter 3, Scott walked us through this just a couple weeks ago. Job voices this deep lament where he laments the day of his birth. He cries out to God in pain, and he asks God a bunch of questions. And in this speech, I think this is what then triggers his friends to feel like they should say something. They hear something in Job's lament to God that they feel like they need to correct, that they need to confront Job. Job is speaking inappropriately about God. God is, he is speaking inappropriately about what he has and hasn't done about this suffering. And what I think is happening, well, essentially what happens is that this speech by Job kicks off a series of lectures from Job's three friends. Each one of his three friends will challenge Job with a diagnosis of why he's suffering and the application, the remedy. They will be a physician, so to speak. Here is what's wrong with you, Job. And if you'll just right these wrongs, you can then return to these blessings. We get three rounds of debate. Round one in chapter 4 through 14, which we're going to look at today. Each one of the men speaks to Job, gives him a challenge. Job responds. It goes like that through all three. Then round two, they all get another shot at him, and he responds to each of them. And then in round three... We get three rounds of debate where these men, trying to help their friend Job, end up wounding him very deeply. Then what we'll see after that is three grand speeches, one by Job, one by this mysterious character named Elihu, and then finally God. God will get the final word and bring his word to bear in Job's life. Here's what I think trips the argument. Here's what I think upsets them. Is Job 3.23, and towards the end of his lament, here is what he says. He says, why is light given to men whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? So in this sense, Job is saying, God, why would you take precious, dear, vulnerable creatures and then cage them in with wickedness? God, why have you done this to me? This is unfair. This is sort of the cry here. And this idea, you remember Satan said that, well, you have hedged him in from evil. Job is saying, no, actually, I feel hedged in with evil. And so it seems like in this that Job is putting the responsibility on God. Why is light given to man whose way is hidden? God, how would he know that he did something wrong? I didn't do anything wrong. God, you have hedged me in. So they, and I think this sets off the friends. The friends now feel like they have to defend God. God has been 
spoken inappropriately, disrespectfully to, and they feel like they need to come to God's defense against Job. Seeking to defend God, they unwittingly become agents of Satan, accusing Job of wrong. Job, if you will just plead guilty to our charges, then you'll get a lighter sentence and your fortunes will be restored. You'll get prosperity back. This is at the heart of their argument, is this retribution principle. If you're receiving evil, it's because you've done evil. If you're receiving blessing, it's because you've done good. Job, if you'll just plead guilty to doing sin against God that's worthy of this, then God will forgive you and He will restore all your blessing. Blessings mean good. Suffering means, you've, you're, means you're evil. So we can just do the math here, Job. Because you're receiving suffering, you have evil. You are evil. And here at the end of chapter 3, we should pause for just a moment. And if we were to hear Job's lament and the way he cries out to God, lamenting the day of his birth, wondering what God is doing, asking God questions, I wonder what we would do if we were Job's friends. How would we respond to Job if we heard this from our friend who was suffering? Would we be tempted like these friends to feel like we have to answer for God? Would we feel tempted that we have to somehow fix what they've said? How would we respond if we were in Job's shoes? In the midst of pain and loss, crying out to God in the honest places of our heart, how would we respond to God? How would we respond when we get unhelpful advice from our friends who feel like they have to fix our view of God? How would I try to help Job if I were one of his friends? And what do my beliefs about God and the world have to say about this suffering? These friends feel compelled to tell Job what's up. I've got a chart here that I think will help us understand what's going on. So on one hand, we have God's justice. God is just in all of His dealings. We also have the retribution principle that God has set up a world of cause and effect. A sense like karma. If you do evil, you'll get evil. You'll reap what you sow. And then we've got Job's innocence. So why do we have suffering? Something between these three triangles, these three corners of the triangle, there's a tension somewhere. Something is wrong. Something, one of these corners is not right. Either God is not being just, Job is innocent and he's receiving evil because God isn't just, or maybe Job actually isn't, isn't innocent to begin with. And what will happen is Job will defend his corner, I'm innocent, I'm telling you. So I have questions about, I have questions about God's justice then. And I have questions about this retribution principle that just seems to be baked into nature that you always get. You always reap what you sow. Job's three friends, in a sense, trying to defend God will try to defend the bottom right triangle. No, this is right. This is the way the world works, is that it's always you reap what you sow. Always, Joel. Job, that is never not the case. And so he will try to defend that corner. And eventually we'll have God show up. And God will speak to the matter himself. So just know that, that these three friends are defending the retribution principle. This is the ancient Near Eastern idea that if bad is coming, you've done bad. If good is coming, you've done good. Okay? So here we get to round one of the debates, chapter 4. If you want to open your Bibles to chapter 4, we're going to read good chunks of this. We're going to go from 4 to 14, all right? We're going to read good chunks of this. Um, But I want you to see this. I want you to see directly from God's Word the way this plays out, as these three friends, feeling like they have to defend God, are seeking to um, confront Job. So first we have Eliphaz. Eliphaz is the oldest. 
his confrontation, he will defend the retribution principle, and he will do so based on personal experience and logic. He seems to be the most respected and oldest of the three, and so he's going to give of his wisdom. Job, this is what I've seen. This is what I've seen. This is what I've experienced. And so he's going to defend the retribution principle with personal experience and logic. Now, he's going to actually, this is going to be the gentlest of, the, of all of the speeches. Eliphaz is actually relatively considerate, even though he's wrong here. And his speech goes from chapter 4 through chapter 5. He's going to start with a gentle request to speak. We'll read that in a second. Then he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna explain the retribution principle. So verses 7 through 11 are the most important thing to get in these speeches because this is where they define their position, and then they're each going to defend it using different arguments, okay? This is the principle in 7 and 11. Then he's going to talk about a personal vision that he has, this weird vision that he has about God's holiness that's supposed to help Job, although it's just confusing. Then he talks about there's no mediator for the unholy, that you can't be unholy before God and expect His blessings. And so then his conclusion will be, seek God repentantly and you'll have all your wealth restored. Kind of a prosperity gospel. If you'll have enough faith, then you'll receive back all of your stuff. Okay? Retribution principle. If you're getting bad, repent of the bad. If you want good, do good stuff. All right? So let's read this. Let's read 4, 1 through 6. Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? They can't hold their peace anymore. They feel a righteous indignation against Job here. Behold, you have instructed many and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling and you have made him made the feeble, you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence in the integrity of your ways, your hope? So he's like, here, I want, to, I want to talk to you for a minute, Job, if you'll listen to me. And then we get the retribution principle explained. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? You reap what you sow. As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same, Job. As by the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. Skip down to verse 12. Now a word was brought to me stealthily, my ear received the whisper of it, amid thoughts from visions of the night when the deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me in trembling, which made all my bones shake, so this weird vision, a spirit guided past my face and the hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes, there was silence, and then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? He's speaking indirectly to say, hey, Job, if you're receiving evil, it's because you're evil. No mortal can say that they're innocent before God. You go to chapter 5, verse 1, call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? Is there any mediator between you and God if you're going to live in unrighteousness? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children were far from safety. They are crushed in the gate. That's a tough thing to say to Job because his kids have been crushed. Her children are far from safety. They are crushed at the gate, and there is no one to deliver them. Job, your kids died because you're unrighteous. Verse 8, as for me, here's what he says. This is, the, this is the dreaded, hey, if I was in your shoes. Anybody been in that spot before? Someone goes, well, here's what I would do if I were in your shoes, and this is what he says. 
As for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause, as does great things and unsearchable and marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth. He sends waters on the field. He extols the greatness of God here for several chapters. Verse 15, but he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. God is punishing you, Job. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death. And in war, from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue, and you shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine, you shall laugh and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your, your tent is at peace, and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many, and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in a ripe old age, like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out, and it is true. Hear and know it for your good. Job he speaks very indirectly here, Job, if you'll listen to me for just a moment, just know that if evil is coming upon you, it's because you've been evil. That's why you've lost all this stuff. And if I were you, what I would do is I would return to the Lord, and then I can guarantee you that if you'll return to the Lord, you'll get all your stuff back, and you'll live a long life. Okay? Now, he said a lot of true things here, but it's a misdiagnosis. And it's just a little bit off. It's like the water bottle that's got one drop of cyanide in it. It's deadly. So much good. But such a, such, a, such a careful misapplication here. Job, your suffering is because of sin. There's no chance of being innocent before God, so just reject that, Job. You've done something horrible. Your suffering proves it. Suffering's not an accident. It's a retribution. This is the law. And I can tell you from my own personal experience, from my own personal visions, Job, God is transcendently holy, and if you'll submit, He'll restore all of your physical blessings. And here's Job's response to Eliphaz. Now, just think of Job. He's in the midst of grief, and if you think of the stages of grief, he's probably already gone through the numbness and shock. That's maybe the silent week, right, of just, just can't even say anything, just leveled by his pain. Chapter 4 feels a little bit like denial and questioning. I just wish I'd never been born, that none of this had ever happened. He's questioning God. Now we turn to anger. This response from Eliphaz, while Eliphaz feels like he's doing a good thing, makes Job pretty angry. So we see in his response in chapters 6 and 7, it starts off with a cry of pain in verses 1 through 7. Then he again cries out for God to just let him die in verses 8 through 13. And then he expresses anger at his friends in verses 14 through 23. Look at chapter 6, verse 14. Here's what he says. This is Job's response to Eliphaz, all right? He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. You're a jerk, Eliphaz. (laughs) And God is displeased with you, because you are now withholding kindness from me. Verse 15, my brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrent streams that pass away. Your your accusations just flood me now. Verse 20, skip down to chapter 6, verse 20. Here's what he says about his friends. They are ashamed because they were confident. They come there and are disappointed. For you know now, for you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. So you can't deal with the fact that if I'm sinful, if I'm, if I'm innocent of this level of suffering and I'm suffering, your whole theology breaks. 
So you have to defend yourselves. Like you're attacking me because you're scared. Because if this could happen to me, it could happen to you. And what happens is when we get afraid, we get defensive, fists up, right? I can't dare be wrong about God and life. This is scary. They're responding out of fear, he says. We get in chapter 6, verses 24 through 30, a plea for sympathy. Hey, would you guys help me? Don't accuse me, but please help me. If there is sin, I want to confess it. Would you help me find it? If not, then comfort me, please, verses 24 through 30. And then in chapter 7, he turns his face to God and he prays and he addresses God. That's what's interesting. We'll see this throughout the book, is that Job's friends never pray. They never talk to God. They talk to Job about God, but they never talk to God about Job. And Job, in every one of his responses, will defend himself against his friends and then take it to God. And you'll see a difference there. That'll be one of our application points at the end. In every one of these speeches, Job invites God into the conversation. He talks to his friends first and then to God. Always, hey, my issue is with God, not my friends. And so in chapter 7, we get his address to God, verses 1 through 10. God, why do I matter to you? Why are you picking on me? I'm just a small creature. And then verses 11 through 21, essentially, God, leave me alone. Your hand is pressed against me, and I don't know why. Would you please just leave me alone? Just, just stop punishing me. Here's what he says, verse 16 of chapter 7. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Like, you don't have to punish me. I'm going to be gone soon. God, why are you punishing me? Leave me alone for my days are a breath. I'll be gone soon, and you won't have to worry about me ever again, God. If I've offended you, if I've made you angry... Verse 17, what is man that you make so much of him that you would suffer in this way, that you would torment him in this way is the idea there, and that you set your heart on him. You visit him every morning and you test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me? Nor leave me alone until I swallow my spit. You don't even let me clear my throat. If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why are you so offended by me? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why are you picking on me? Verse 21, why do you not pardon the transgression and take away my iniquity? If I've sinned, I repent. Like, why do you keep pressing this in on me? For now I shall lie in the earth and you will seek me and I shall not be. It won't be much longer, God, and you won't have me to torture anymore. All right, so this is heavy. So that's Eliphaz. Eliphaz sort of lays out the principle of retribution, defends it with experience and reason. Now Bildad... Bildad is not happy with Job at all. Job is, uh, Bildad is very sharp-tongued, and what he's going to do is he's going to defend the retribution principle, but he's going to do so from tradition and history. Eliphaz is going to use his own wisdom, his own experience, his own visions, his own advice. Bildad's going to go, let's look, at, let's, look at what the, let's look at what people before us have, have discovered. Let's check the history books. What have other people believed about God before? Let's learn um, history and nature. Let's look at these things and see if they teach us anything. Uh, some have described Bildad because Bildad comes in pretty hot. He, he is not happy with Job. He, he, he doesn't, he's not near as kind as Eliphaz, and Eliphaz was not particularly kind either. Um, so Bildad's very sharp-tongued from the very outset in chapter 8. Some have described him as he has the personality of a retired army colonel. I don't know what that means. I'm not in the army, but... I assume that means relatively direct and not very kind, okay? So in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 8, this is Bildad's challenge now to Job. In light of what he said to Eliphaz, he's going to say, God's ways are just. 
Job, and you need to deal with that, verses 1 through 7. Tradition and nature confirm God's justice, chapter 8, verses 8 through 19, okay? So he's going to appeal to the authority of tradition and nature to confirm that Job's in the wrong. And then in verses 20 through 22, he's going to call Job to return to just living, and then he'll get all of his wealth back, okay? Let's go ahead and read a chunk of it. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, how long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a great wind, Job. We are so sick of hearing you. Verse 3, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? And this, this might be the hardest phrase in the whole book. Listen to what he says. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Your kids died because they deserved it, Job. And you need to deal with that. God is just. And if they died, it's because they did something worth death. Verse 5, if you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are a pure and upright, seek and he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. So he's calling him to repent of his sin. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. I guarantee you prosperity, Job, if you'll just plead guilty. Plead guilty that you deserve this. Then he makes his case, verses 8 through 19. For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing. For our days on earth are a shadow, and they will teach you and tell you the and utter words out of your understanding. Can papyrus grow in, where there is no marsh? So now he's, gonna, he's, gonna, he's appealing to tradition. This is the tradition of the ancients forever, this retribution principle. And actually, this is how nature works. When nature has good environment, when it's good soil, things grow. When it's bad, it doesn't, right? Can the papyrus grow where there's no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? Yet, while yet in flower and will cut down, they wither before any other plant? Sure, such are the paths of, su of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. If your life is bad soil, you're going to get bad stuff, Job. If your life is good, just soil, you'll get good stuff. And then in chapter, in verse 20 through 22, he says, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, Job, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the tent of the wicked shall be no more. So this feels like a gentle ending, but again, it's, it's this idea of Job, you have done evil that you need to confess to God. And Job's like, I haven't done the evil that deserves this. And here's Job's response. First, he agrees that God is just, but that he just feels bullied. Like this, if this is the retribution principle, it is way too extreme. God, God is coming at me with a level of suffering that is disproportionate to my sin. I feel like God is just being a bully to me. If we were to go through the stages of grief, he's in despair at this point. Look at chapter 9, verse 2. He says, truly, I know that it is so, but how can a man be right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. It's an unfair fight. He is wise in heart and mighty, mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. So he, in that sense, says, I agree with you, but who can, who can challenge God? Who, who, could, who could bring an appeal to him? This is not a fair fight. I feel bullied. Go down to verse 16 of chapter 9. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my words without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. 
And then verse 28, I have become afraid of all my suffering, for I know that you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you would plunge me into a pit and my own clothes would abhor me. For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. Let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. And then I would speak without fear of him for I am not so in myself. Just despair. Then in chapter 10, he talks to God and laments God's oversight of his life. Just says, God, I don't know why you would bring me into the world and then cause this to happen. I don't understand. Would you help me? I feel bullied. I feel pressured. I feel picked on. And he says something really interesting right in the middle, chapter 10, verses 8 through 19. He says, he talks about how he was created in the womb. Look at verse 8. Your hands fashioned me and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and you will return me to dust. Verse 10, did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? It's an interesting way to think about how a baby develops in the womb, the curdling of cheese, okay? You clothed me with skin and flesh. So he's talking about how God makes an image bearer in the womb. You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love and your care has reserved my spirit. Skip down to verse 18. Why did you bring me out of the womb? Would that I had died before an eye had seen me and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. So for Job, he's lamenting, he's talking to God, but for Job, Job understands that God creates life in the womb, that God is carefully and fearfully, wonderfully making human beings in his image, and he does so with great delight and care. Job says, that used to be me. Why, why have you turned on me? Which tells us something about in our age, when it comes to when is a when is, a, when is a fetus a baby and at what stage, you know, abortion and all that stuff? For Job, it's very clear. Now, in his lament here, he discloses what I think is the biblical understanding is that life begins at conception and that God himself is putting together a human being. So there are a few of you in here that are carrying children right now, and that is happening right now. God is delighting in putting together an image bearer, and Job would affirm that. Even in this deep, dark place, Job is still holding on to these important truths. So that's Job's second response to Bildad. And then we get to our good friend Zophar. Zophar the Naamathite. Zophar might be the meanest of the three. If you think it's bad so far, Zophar, man, Zophar does not mess around. Zophar has the shortest of the speeches, and in fact, he doesn't say anything in the third. So he gets a lot of barbs in in a short amount of time. There's no empathy in Zophar at all. And so Eliphaz defends the retribution uh, principle from his own experience, his own wisdom, his own advice. Bildad does so from history and nature. And Zophar is going to appeal to God's wisdom and reason. Like it actually just makes sense that the retribution principle works. And he's brutally sarcastic in verses 1 through 6. He then marvels at God's wisdom in in verses 7 through 12, which is actually really beautiful what he says here about God. God himself will say something similar towards the end. So, so far, it's not 100% wrong. And then he calls him to repent of his sins in verses 13 through 20. So this is Zophar. So two, the two guys have spoke. Zophar is the closer. He's going to come in and he's going to fire some heat at Job. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then Zophar, the Naamathite, answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered? 
and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men when you mock? Shall no one shame you? For you say, and here's the sarcasm, you say, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you. So you just speak sarcastically to him. Oh, Job, you're so innocent. You're so right. No. <laughs> I'm going to speak for God here and listen to what he says. Verse 6. And then he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold and understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Whoa. He really just said that. Job, you think this is bad? God should be punishing you way worse than this because you refuse to repent. And then he talks about God's wisdom. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. I don't even know what that means. But it made sense to him, I guess. And here's what he says. So, man, he's just like, okay, they're getting angry. And they're responding in anger to Job, and they feel like they need to force him to conform to their understanding. And here's what they say. Verse 13, if you prepare your heart, and look at all the you wills. Zophar is making promises that if Job will agree with him, I can guarantee you these will be the blessings on the other side. Okay? Now just look at all the you wills here. If you prepare your heart, Zophar says, if you'll prepare your heart, if you'll plead guilty, here's what I can guarantee you. Zophar is making guarantees on behalf of God. You will stretch out your hands towards him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and you will not fear. You will not forget, you will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away and your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down, and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor, but the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them, and their hope is to breathe their last. So this mechanical understanding of wisdom and reason, it's a nice, easy formula, Job. Just confess whatever sin you're hiding from us, whatever injustice... And I guarantee you, you will get all your stuff back. Everything will be great. I guarantee it. It's like a fourfold step of, worship, or, uh, of salvation by works. Stretch out your hands to Him. Put away the sin. Allow no evil to dwell in your tents. And then you will get all these things, which are actually somewhat true. It's just they're making the wrong diagnosis here. And Job responds to Zophar. And he returns sarcasm with sarcasm in chapter 12 through verse 13, 19. Here's what he says, chapter 12, verses 2 through 4. No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. You guys are the keepers of all the wisdom. Oh boy, you've said some really great things. And here's what he says, but I have understanding as well as you. I've read all the books that you've read. I know all the things you know. You guys are not. I'm not inferior to you, he says. Who does not know such things as these? We understand you reap what you sow. 
I'm just telling you, that's not what's happening here. That's what Job's saying, and they're not listening. He says, I'm a laughingstock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, I am a laughingstock. And then in chapter 13, verse 1, behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know, and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies, you worthless physicians, are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. So once they all get a chance to say something, he goes, this is worthless. Like you've made a wrong diagnosis, you're giving the wrong treatment. I know what you will say, it's just not applicable to this situation. Your remedies are bad because your diagnosis is bad. And Job then expresses his complaints to God in chapter 13, 20 through the rest of chapter 14. And what I think we see in Job through that section is this conflicted bargaining that he does. He says things like, leave me alone, God. And then in the very next sentence says, hey, come and face me, God. And he's conflicted. Like his pain has just blurred his vision. He doesn't know what he wants from God. He just knows that he wants this to come to a resolution. God, leave me alone. Get far away from me. Hey, God, come here. I want to talk to you. He just goes back and forth as he's conflicted. And the stages of grief, bargaining and depression. That's where Job is at here. And he asks these burning questions in Job chapter 14. Look at Job 14, 4. He says, who can bring a clean thing out of an, out of un, an unclean? How can someone who is so broken and and destroyed, how could anything good come back out of this? Can anyone turn what is evil for good? Is kind of at the heart here. Can an evil be turned for good? Chapter 14, verse 10, he asks this question. But a man dies and laid low, man breathes his last, and where is he? So, so what happens to a person after they die? God seems to torment them and then they die. Well, then what? What comes after death? And then in Job 14, 14, he says, if a man dies, shall he live again? So what will he be when a man dies? Where will he be when he dies? So all of this pain, you're seeing Job work out his theology, work out his relationship with God, work out what, how do I understand death? How do I understand justice? How do I understand these things? And these questions sort of hang out there. So we're going to see, we'll look at this more next week and the week after, of this development in Job as he, God is shaping and molding Job ever so slightly. And we get these little glimmers of hope. Look at chapter 14, verses 14 through 17. In the midst of all of this pain and depression, accusation against God and questions, defending himself against his friends, he feels cornered by both his friends and God. And he wants to do the right thing. It's just it doesn't make sense. And here's what he says, this little glimmer of hope in all of this darkness. Here's what he says, All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. For then you would number my steps and you would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. In the midst of his pain, there's still this glimmer. In the midst of these questions is this, still, is this glimmer of, I still believe in the goodness of God, and I still believe that he has affection for me, that he has love for me, and that there is something that's going to turn this around. I can't see it right now. He immediately, right after that, goes back into kind of depression mode. But you get this glimpse that his faith is still holding in the midst of this. His, faithful, his, 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 his belief 
that God is not ultimately going to abandon him. It feels like it now, but that will not be the final word. If there's things that he has done wrong, I know God will forgive. I know that he's going to redeem me. I know the work, I am the work of his hands and he cherishes me. And so I will hold on to the fact that in this pain and this suffering, God is not done with me yet. So Job feels attacked by both God and his friends. His friends aren't listening. God seems petty and threatened by him. But in none of this does Job respond as Satan predicted. And even his friends, who unwittingly become accusers of Satan, he won't cave, he won't plead guilty just to get a lighter sentence. He wants an honest relationship with God based in integrity. He won't just push the buttons to try to make the pain go away. He wants to know why. He wants to know God. He wants to know God above all else, even more than getting his wealth, his health, or even his children back. That's what he wants. He wants a right relationship with God, and their relationship is not right. He wants to know why. I want an honest relationship with God. And no, I will not lie and plead guilty when that has not been brought to my attention What I want to know is I want to know why God is working the way he's working and how I can be right with him. That's what I want more than anything else is I want God for God. A few takeaways for us and we're done. I thought of a lot, actually. I was afraid I would have a hard time coming up with applications from these speeches. Not hard at all. Here's one. This is one from James 1, 19 through 20. Let every person be quick to hear slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Job's friends are not listening. They are not hearing what's going on with Job. They have already predetermined what's going on, and so they've stopped listening. They have now become very quick to speak. And when Job doesn't receive their speaking very well, they get angry. And they just speak more and harder and harsher. And their anger is not producing the righteousness of God. In fact, God at the end of the book will go, you have not spoke rightly about me. You've said some true things. That's not the point. The point is you've spoke wrongly about me. They're not listening. They're quick to speak, quick to anger. Are we that way? How often are we the same? Are we quick to hear what's really going on with compassion and empathy? Are we slow to speak? Because we may not actually know. That's the thing. These friends think they know. And slow to anger, that even if they don't respond the way I think they ought to, that there should be a slowness to anger and a gentleness. If, and I just love the definitiveness, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It will not take you where you want to go. Second takeaway, calamity and prosperity are not necessarily direct results of any particular good or evil action. We're seeing that the retribution principle doesn't work. Karma, prosperity gospel, it's all dangerously false. There's some general principality, principles there that are kind of true. So much of wisdom literature speaks about that. But here in this book, in this part of wisdom literature, what, when it, what about when it doesn't? And we need to be very, very careful. 
One example that came to my mind on a kind of a big scale is Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, just a couple days after the 9-11 attacks, said this. I really believe that the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the lesbians who are trying actively to make that an alternative lifestyle, the ACLU, the people of the American way, all of them have tried to secularize America. I point the finger in their face and say, you made this happen. Now, what's different is that Job is actually innocent here, so he's not pointing his finger necessarily at innocent people. But to connect a particular catastrophe to a particular sin and point your finger is something that Job, the book of Job, where they do it over and over again, is entirely inappropriate. Only God can know this. I love what Al Mohler said in response to these guys. He says, there's no doubt that America has accommodated itself to many sins and that we should fear God's judgment, but we ought to be very careful about pointing to any circumstance or any specific tragedy and say that this thing has happened because of a direct punishment from God. That is very dangerous to say. But it works the other way in terms of blessing. Franklin Graham said in 2016 at President Trump's inauguration, said, Mr. President, in the Bible, rain is a sign of God's blessing, and it started to rain when you came to the platform. Rain's also a sign of judgment in the Bible in a pretty dramatic way. That's, we need to be very, very careful there of saying that clearly this is God's blessing or this is God's cursing. We can't say that. Job will not let us say that. In fact, Jesus has asked this question when his disciples come by a man born blind. And here's what happens in John 9, 1 through 3. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man or his parents that he was born blind? It's the same, same exact line of thinking Job's friends have. Retribution theology. This man's blind, was it him or his parents? Two options, Jesus. Which one is it? We're great theologians. We understand how the world works. Jesus said, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. That's what's happening with Job. Job is actually being punished because God delights in him. What do you do with that? God is seeking to hold up Job as a beacon of his glory, and he's going to use suffering to show it. God has the right to do that. Let us not fall into retribution theology, retribution principles ourselves in any particular acts, individual or worldwide. We just simply can't know that. And the book of Job tells us that sometimes we don't know what we think we know. Those scenes in heaven point to the fact that God himself is not punishing Job. And Job's friends conclude that they know and must defend God and they wound Someone God delights in. Oh, we should be careful. Number three, this one is very similar, overlaps with the last one. The events of our lives and the purposes of God are far more mysterious than our bumper sticker platitudes or rigid simplistic systems. You can't just put a little Bible verse on a coffee mug and give it to them and go, all things work together for good for those who love God. That's true, and that's not necessarily helpful right now. Maybe it'll be helpful later. Daniel Atkinson says this, he says, In one thing to pro it is one thing to proclaim the truth about God, it is another thing to press those claims inappropriately. It's just not the right time, guys, to be debating theology while the guy's scratching worms out of his sores. This is not the time for this. 
Eliphaz sidesteps Job's problem, talking about something else. Bildad's view of the moral order is too narrow to consider Job's needs. And Zophar believes he sees things more clearly than anybody. And they wound their friends. True theological statements can be false if they're applied in the wrong way. Good treatments can be bad if the diagnosis is bad. Job, trust in truth, not your feelings. Well, that's true and not helpful. And it's too simplistic because God himself even has feelings. Our feelings are part of who we are. So yes, truth over feelings for sure, but not in a way that we wound people. These guys are closed in their minds to anything that doesn't fit in their system. They've already decided how God works and how he must work in any situation. And they can't bear the thought of a world that would not be consistent and predictable in their minds. Number three, I think, or four, number four. This one I think might be one of the most important. Honest prayers to God are better than brilliant defenses of God. Job will be commended at the end, partially because he goes to God. And he says some crazy things that make me feel uncomfortable. But God seems to prefer that over friends who only talk about God. None of his friends ever pray for him. And I think that we could say, honest prayers to God are better than brilliant defenses of God. Speaking to God in pain is better than speculating about God's purposes for pain. Job is wrestling with his relationship with God, and his friends are concerned with cold theological principles detached from reality. And Job's friends never actually pray for him that we see. It's a shame. Lastly, suffering drives us to the big questions that Job asks in chapter 14. True and false theology is often sorted out in the middle of trial and pain and confusion. You can look at all the great theologians down through history. It's trial and pain and confusion that God workshops these thinking, this thinking. Ultimately, all of these find their termination and satisfaction not in a system or principles for life, but a relationship with a person, Jesus Christ. In fact, Job's question in 14.4, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean, is that Jesus is the one who can bring things. He's the one that can turn the most evil act in the world, the most unjust thing in the world, the murder of the Son of God, and turn it into our salvation. He's capable of making an evil thing and turning it for good. Job 10.14, if a man dies and is laid low and breathes his last, where is he? If you trust in Christ, then you are with Christ as the thief on the cross who's getting the justice he does deserve. And Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise. And in Job 14, 14, he asks, if a man dies, shall he live again? And Jesus, speaking with Mary and Martha at the tomb of Lazarus, wondering, why, Jesus? If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes, though he die, yet shall he live. So the answer to Job's question is Jesus. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the one who can turn our suffering for good. And he is the one we will be with for eternity. He's the one who will right the wrongs and make everything new. That's enough preaching for today. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time together in these 11 chapters where these friends, meaning, well-meaning as they may be, uh, add to the burden of their friends, of their friend. 
God, may we learn lessons from this. May we be very humble and very teachable and quick to listen and slow to speak. And as we enter into the the lives of other people who are in pain, may we speak more to you on their behalf than we do to them on your behalf. May we be gentle and kind, and may we realize that ultimately the answers are not formulas and systems, but a person who came and joined us in this suffering, who rose again from the dead and can wipe away every tear from our eyes. Let us point to him. Let us trust in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.